The world that we live in is filled with chaos. We are all searching for meaning in our lives, but we often get lost along the way. We all must ultimately realize that meaning is found in responsibility for our actions, for the way we live our life, and for the people in our lives. We don't have to stay in the chaos. We can choose to bring order to our lives. Join us for a fresh perspective on the practical steps we can take to become who God intended us to be and to realize what our calling is. This is Coming Out of Chaos. Welcome back to the Coming Out of Chaos podcast. My name is Michael Bocklig. I am your host, and I'm joined as always by my co-host and my good friend, Bryce Kirk. Bryce, we haven't done this in quite some time, but I am overjoyed to be recording with you again, my friend. Absolutely, Michael. It's great to be back uh, in the recording chair and, uh, you know, doing this with you. Um, It's been far too long, but we've had some stuff going on. So uh, let's get back to it. Yeah, I mean, we really have had quite a bit going on, and it just so happened at the same time. And specifically, you started a career and a new job, and I actually started a new role at my job almost at the exact same time. So both of us have been trying to adjust to, I guess, that that new cadence of life, right? Exactly, and thank God for it. It's had its challenges for sure, um, and it's also had its... Uh, I guess it's had its its easier points as well, but I think we've both been able to learn a lot uh, over the last few months, you know, from kind of our respective jobs. And I did move to a new city, uh, attending a new parish. So there's been a lot going on with that as well. And glory to God for all things. Um, and it's great that we're starting this again too, Michael, the first week of Great Lent. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, Great Lent just started, as you said, as, as at the time of this recording, we're really at the end of the first week of Great Lent. And there's been a lot of services that I've been attending and that I know you've been attending at your parish. And and yeah, I think the timing is right. First of all, it's really nice to be, at least speaking for myself, in a routine and to kind of let my new job and my new role kind of settle in and know uh, kind of what that looks like. And and it's really good that we're getting back to this. We really had to take a break for a few months, and so much has happened over those last few months. Uh, we actually have a a new metropolitan that was elected by the Holy Synod of Antioch, and and again, that just happened at the end of February, so just last week from the time that we're recording this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank God there has been a lot going on, for sure, and um, thank God for Metropolitan Saba, and it is also a blessing to still have... Bishop Nicholas remaining the bishop of our diocese as well. Yes, as you mentioned, Metropolitan Saba was the one elected, and he's already a Metropolitan, but he's essentially being transferred to our archdiocese, and we're looking forward to welcoming him and pray that God grants him many years as our Metropolitan and wish him all the success in the world. We we know that we really need leadership, and so uh, that's something that, that I think we're going to talk a lot about in this episode, just leadership in general. That's going to be kind of the overarching theme. Uh, But before we do that, I also wanted to mention we have a lot to look forward to. We have Antiochian Men Month coming up in April, and that's in our diocese, the Diocese of Miami in the Southeast. His Grace Bishop Nicholas started Antiochian Men Month in April and recognized that as Amen Month a couple of years ago. And so during the month of April, We've been encouraging the men to just get more involved in the parish and help out with whatever the priest needs help with or or just doing special things like doing the collection plate or ushering or reading the epistle during the month of April and, of course, getting the blessing of the parish priest to do those things. Uh, but that's just around the corner. We're recording this here in early March, which uh, right now it's actually Antiochian Women's Month. Mm-hmm. I know that's been kind of uh, shared and advertised a lot in our in our parishes, at least here in the Antiochian Archdiocese. But next month in our diocese, we'll be looking forward to having the men step up. And and this is another reason why, Bryce, I think this is really good timing to start up our recordings in this podcast again, because we are, we're going to change things up a little bit. And you and I have talked about this, and at least for the next few episodes, uh, I think using a different format will really help to refresh this podcast, but we'll see how it goes. Bryce, why don't you talk a little bit about what we plan to do? Absolutely. So today we're going to begin a new series that Michael and I have talked a lot about, and we think it's going to be something that you're really going to enjoy. So in many of our conversations, we've mentioned stories and sayings of the saints of the church, 
And the lives of the saints give us a great deal of understanding and not just about them, but where they come from, who they are and the lives they live for the glory of God. So since this is a podcast geared toward men, we want to examine some of the saints among the many who exemplified Christian masculinity in the lives that they lived, their efforts for the church and the virtues that they possessed. So Michael and I will both be picking a saint to discuss in the coming episodes. Each one of us will pick one. So we'll be focusing on two saints per episode. So since Amen Month is coming up, we would also be highlighting saints that we feel are great examples of each of the Amen core values. And to refresh your memory on what the core values are, uh, Michael, why don't you start us off? Yeah, so the core values of the Antiochian men are on our website at antiochianmen.org. And if you click on start here, you'll see it if you scroll down on our website. And we've mentioned these values before, but really the values are, first of all, leadership, and then obedience, then vigilance and endurance. And if you take the first letter of each of those values, or really their virtues, it spells out the word love, which is really the overarching value and love being that fifth value that is uh, core to the Antiochian men. So those are the values that we'll be focusing on. And in this episode, as you said, Bryce, uh, we're going to dive into sharing a couple of saints that we personally believe really exhibit, especially the leadership value very, very well in the lives that they lived. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to start off the series with one of the saints of Great Britain, St. Alfred the Great. And a little bit of context, um, he may be a little bit of a lesser known saint within Orthodoxy. He is an Orthodox saint. And so St. Alfred, I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and they were describing the life of St. Alfred to me. And he was a king of England uh, prior to the schism. And not only was he the king of England, but he was a very pious man. He loved God with all his heart. And he lived his life as well as he could. And I purchased a book called The White Horse King, which is the life of Alfred the Great by Benjamin Merkel. And I was reading through his story and I was absolutely in awe. He had a lot that he had to overcome in life. And he did so with patience and endurance. And he showed leadership and mercy upon his enemies as well. I think he's a great example of a saint that we can start this series off with. Yeah, Bryce, and I really enjoyed learning about this saint, and I'm so glad that you picked St. Alfred the Great. What really struck me about the early part of his life is, first of all, he was raised by a very pious father who really took his faith very seriously. And as we think about you know, our role as men and as fathers to our biological children and really even in mentoring to others— the, the good influence that you can have from that father figure. You know, here's a saint in history who, as you said, was a king. So there mm -hmm. you go. I mean, he was definitely a leader, but it was more than that. I mean, he, it was the way that he was raised that I think kind of set the stage for what happened later in life. And I particularly loved reading about St. Alfred and learning that he loved to learn and he loved the Lord Jesus Christ but he really was kind of looking forward to a life of contemplation in the church, but that didn't end up being his fate. He wasn't really expecting to become king. And I think that's also a really important piece of his character. Absolutely. He was the youngest of five children born to his father, the king, Ethelwolf, in the kingdom of Wessex. And so because he was the youngest, he had several brothers that were perhaps 20 or 25 years older than he was. So the fact that Alfred eventually comes into the throne was probably an afterthought to the people in his family and perhaps the people in the kingdom. Right. And you mentioned his father's faith as well. He went to Rome on a pilgrimage with his father when he was very, very young. And the Pope at the time took him under his wing. Unfortunately, the Pope reposed not too long after that. But he was able to see Rome in its glory at the time it was Orthodox. At the time, he was able to see, you know, the beauty and the splendor of the city. And he comes back to England and he had a love of poetry as well. He loved reading about the kings of old. He loved reading about the saints. He loved reading about the scriptures. And later on in his life, when he was able to finally learn how to read and write, he was able to translate many of the older documents of the church into uh, Anglo-Saxon language. That's something that also really stood out to me, Bryce. I was 
also reading about, you know, he, he was in many respects, kind of a wartime leader. There were, there was a constant threat of attack from the Vikings. Right. And actually he was successful with, with defending his kingdom. But later on in his life, I think what's really interesting is that he initiated kind of a spiritual revival among, especially the monasteries. And as you mentioned, you know, he was, he was such a big proponent of education and his translations of the books that he that he translated they were books that he felt were most necessary for all men to know and i think that's even a quote of his that he thought they were so necessary some of the books were gregory the great's pastoral care boethius consolation of philosophy and saint augustine's soliloquies and the first 50 psalms of the psalter doing those translations making it a focus i mean that's true leadership right there Absolutely. And when you think about it too, you mentioned the strife that Great Britain as a whole is in during this time. So in the prior century, the Vikings began raiding across the coasts of England and Ireland. And one of their first targets was the Isle of Lindisfarne, where there was a great monastery for a time. Uh, St. Aidan hails from there, St. Cuthbert, as well as many other saints. And during this time, the Vikings began picking these places because they were easy targets, stealing the vast amounts of wealth and coming after it. And as a result of that, monasticism in England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland all kind of declined Mm. over the course of the next 80 or so years until Alfred comes in and ascends to the throne. And so when these Viking raids begin, they do begin as raids, a few ships at a time, come to the shores, they raid a monastery or a small village, they take all the wealth, and then they go back to Scandinavia. But then eventually, they become much more coordinated. They come with big armies, uh, the great heathen army, among others. And these are actually the sons of Ragnar Lothbrook. And uh, if you've seen the show Vikings, which I actually have not. I have seen the show. I I enjoyed watching Vikings. And when you say the name Ragnar Lothbrok and, you know, his sons, it's, it's just interesting because, you know, it's Hollywood tends to take a little bit of Liberty with history and they can sensationalize things, but uh, it also does give you a little bit of a feel for what it was like at that time. And, and truly the Vikings were relentless. I mean, they would just, you're, you're right. They went from raids into a much more coordinated attack. And when you think about, you know, St. Alfred. I mean, he was coming to kingship at the age of 22 yeah. during a time of near constant serious threat from the heathen Viking Danes, as you were talking about. I mean, that's an incredible amount of pressure to be faced with as a young man and then being thrust into a leadership role that you never even expected you would be in. Oh, exactly. And they took so much of England so quickly. Uh, there were four Anglo-Saxon kingdoms at the time, and the Vikings made quick work of East Anglia Then they moved up to Northumbria and Northern England. They took York and they killed the Kings there in horrific ways. One of them was killed shot full of arrows. As he cried out to Christ, they shot him full of arrows till he looked like a hedgehog. And then because they got annoyed, the Vikings got annoyed at him calling out to Christ in his agony. Mm. They finished him off. And the other one was finished off by the brutal tactic of a blood eagle. And so you see through this, these are sacrifices to the pagan god, Odin. Right. And all they wanted was conquest. And so after this point, it's just Wessex. And as you mentioned, Alfred becomes the king at 22. He fights in a battle with his brother. The first time he fights is with his older brother, hmm. who was the king at the time. And they made they had to go over to another spot to fight in Alfred's second battle. He ends up fighting at Ashdown. And so I want to talk a little bit about that because this is a absolutely brutal thing. You know, I was 22 years old once, not too long ago, as as were you, Michael. And when we think about, you know, where we're at in that position, you're a young man. He's royalty, of course, but he has to do something. He has a duty that he has to uphold. And so he fights at Ashdown, the Battle of Ashdown, uh, and the writer of The White Horse King, the book that I had read about Alfred, uh, he says that St. Alfred fights manfully like a wild boar. Hmm. And this is his second battle ever. Remember that. And so he could not afford to be fearful. 
So he goes down to his men there who undoubtedly are afraid. And he instills them with words of bravery and tells them to trust in God and they form up the shield wall. Now, Michael, I know you've seen the movie 300, right? I have. One of my favorites. Yeah. So the shield wall is an ancient, very ancient tactic, even at this point. And this is the ninth century. Mm. And so the shield wall operates with men almost interlinking their arms to keep themselves as one unit. They move as one. They fight as one. And if one man out of that unit falls back either through cowardice or if he falls in battle, another one has to come and take his place and stand and fight by his brothers. And so you see Alfred do this and he's, he's the prince at the time. He's not quite yet the king, but he stands there and holds his ground and he beats the Vikings at Ashdown, which actually he was supposed to fight with his brother in this battle, but his brother was at a church saying his prayers and he never showed up. <laughs> and so Alfred fought alone and uh, eventually his older brother, Ethelred, dies and Alfred assumes the crown. And so there is this time of tribulation. There is this time of uncertainty. And he's a young man. But at the same time, he takes this courage and he takes this leadership in a time when his people needed it the most. And he trusts in God and he goes forth. Yeah. And I was thinking as you were telling that story, just the leadership capabilities that Alfred had his masculine leadership in the face of hardship, you know, against all odds. And you really have to be tested. If you're going to be a strong leader of others, you you can't just go in and just think it's going to be a cakewalk. I think one of the things that happens when anyone becomes a leader is they have to face sometimes very, very extreme circumstances and try to find a way through it. People look to people like that, especially those that aren't sure what to do. But this is somebody here that was again, raised in the right way by a strong father mm -hmm. that had courage and that was willing to step in when, when it was needed. You know, he, he wasn't seeking out the throne, but when it happened, he stepped up to the plate. He didn't shrink away or just try to do whatever made him feel comfortable. And I think Bryce, there's so many examples throughout all of history of kings that as soon as they take the throne, become very self-centered, become, you know, very inward focus and looking for just experiencing as many pleasures as possible. And in somebody that approaches them that way, maybe want to avoid conflict and, and who cares if, you know, they get overrun, they can maybe become, you know, subject to the next ruler and have a, a favorable position. Right. You know, you see that in history with, with weaker leaders. Right, exactly. And to him, and I think, you know, we really see this with him is he wanted to be obedient to God. Right. And early on in his life, when he was a young man, he began to feel the lusts and the passions begin to creep into him. He began to feel these temptations and he wanted to fight against them. Right. And so early on in his life, he spent gr a great deal of time in the churches in his local area. And he would pray to God that he would send some type of ailment that could hinder his ability that would make him weak enough to give in to these lusts, but not so severe that it would prevent him from doing his duty as, as a prince at the time. Hmm. And so after this point, after he prayed for this, uh, he was assailed with a, a disease called piles. And after this proved to be too severe at one point, uh, he prayed for something a little bit less painful. And as I recall, uh, what he was eventually afflicted with, I believe we would call today is Crohn's disease. Um, and this actually hit him during his wedding banquet, this pain. And Alfred kept this strength. So understand this too. He's not only worried about this outside force that's invading his home that could potentially kill him, but he also has this internal ailment that assailed him for a great deal of his life. Wow, Bryce, I really didn't even know about that part of his story. And I think that's, I mean, that tells you a lot about the man where he was facing threats both within and from without. And the fact that he, he does go into battle and he does lead, you know, he's essentially a military leader, mm -hmm. even though he's a king and he's successful in battle. There's a point, and you mentioned this earlier, Bryce, where you know the way that he treated his enemies after he had conquered them or after he had defeated them, he, one one of his enemies was Guthrum the Dane, and he was defeated in a decisive battle 
and it pretty much ended the Viking threat for many years at that point. And yeah. as a term of the surrender, Guthrum received holy baptism. Right. And so he ended up converting his enemy and and he actually stood as his godfather, you know, and, and also all of the men with him. So this is an example of justice and mercy that this saint is giving us an incredible example of even when he was victorious in battle, right? He doesn't take it too far. He actually finds a way to love his enemies and to bring them to Christ. Exactly. And that's my favorite part of the story. And especially when you look at where Alfred is at this point. So he is eventually defeated. He pays the Vikings after his victory at Ashdown, something called the Danegeld, which is basically just saying, I'm going to pay you a bunch of money to leave me alone. And I'm going to trust you that you're actually going to do it. And as it would turn out, they don't leave him alone. And they come back and they take most of his kingdom. They take most of Wessex. And they are led by Guthrum. And so Alfred is forced into exile. And a lot of his friends have betrayed him at this point. He's almost entirely alone. And this part actually reminds me of the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson. Mm. When he has to flee to the swamps of South Carolina as a guerrilla fighter against uh, the English occupying force during the American Revolution. And he has a small band of soldiers with him. They're kind of relying on hit and run tactics. You know, they're perhaps they're not expecting a great victory, but they're hopeful. And so Alfred, during this exile, he's betrayed, he's outnumbered. What's he going to do? And so he's forced to become a wanderer. And Alfred still fights against the invaders at this time, here and there. But it was a time for him to learn humility and obedience and patience. And so after some time, he realized that he needed to make a strike. And so he does. He rallies more men to his side and he makes a stand after Pentecost, which as a quick note as well, the Vikings, when they would raid and when they would attack, they managed to figure out the Christian calendar and they would figure out when the major feast days of the church were. And so then they would make hits around these times. So around the Nativity or around Pascha or around Pentecost, but an Alfred flipped it on them. Hmm. And he went back at the Vikings during this time. And so he finally manages to fight against Guthrum at a place called Eddington, and he defeats him there. And then he forces Guthrum to a place called Chippenham. And then Alfred forces the Viking leader to surrender. And it's just like you said, he shows him mercy instead of treating his enemy how his other kings had been treated during this time. Yeah, and quite honestly, how Vikings would have treated him or his people. Exactly, exactly. And when Guthrum comes to Alfred, he's begging for peace. He's begging for mercy. He's offering him everything that he can. And Alfred says, okay, well, we'll do this, but you must receive holy baptism. And Guthrum could have easily said, sure, absolutely, let's do that. And then he could have flipped on it because that had happened before. Yeah. But as you would come to find out, Guthrum is baptized. And as you mentioned, Alfred is his godfather. He is his sponsor. He wears the white robe mm -hmm. of baptism and he takes the name Ethelstan and he becomes a neighboring king and a great ally to Alfred after this point. Oh, it's just such a beautiful story, Bryce. I, I really am glad you picked that saint. In my own research, I just I was just amazed by the story, and I'm so glad that this was the one that you picked. I hope we could move on to my saint at this point. Thank God. Let's let's go for it. I uh, I'm a big fan of this one as well. All right. Well, we'll go right into it. And this was this is a big saint that I think uh, all of our listeners probably have heard of before, and many probably already know much of his story already. Uh, but St. John the Baptist is the saint that I chose. And St. John the Baptist happens to be the patron saint of the spiritual advisor to the Antiochian men, Father mm -hmm. Hans Jacobsi. And I'll just start by saying that it's it's always a little bit comical when he mentions this in, in a lot of the talks that he gives where, you know, he, he tells people who go into a church and the first thing he does, he goes up to the iconostasis and he'll venerate the icon. 
But then he also says, sometimes he'll tell people, well, I just also want to make sure I don't say anything that's going to cause me to get my head cut off like John the Baptist, my patron saint. (laughs) And a lot of people, especially our listeners, are probably familiar with the fact that that's how St. John met his his uh, his end was by being beheaded. Yeah, but that's right. That is that is just one part of the story. In fact, the beheading of John the Baptist is liturgically uh, the day of the year where there's a very strict fast, and mm-hmm. it's towards the end of the liturgical year. And I wanted to kind of just give an overview of the, the basics of his story, but then really zero in on some key takeaways that we as men. I think can can take from St. John the Baptist example. And as I was preparing for this, there were a lot of things that just jumped out at me that maybe I didn't think of in that way before. But let's start at the beginning. So St. John is called the Holy Forerunner and Baptist of the Lord. And the Lord himself, Jesus, called him the greatest of the prophets. And his story really concludes the history of the Old Testament and opens the era of the New Testament. And the holy prophet John bore witness to the only begotten Son of God, incarnate in the flesh, and also baptized Christ in the Jordan River. And he was a witness of the theophany of the Most Holy Trinity on the day of the Savior's baptism. So most of us are probably aware of all that. Now, those listening may also be aware that the prophet John was the son of the priest Zechariah and the righteous Elizabeth, and was related to the Lord on his mother's side. The Holy Forerunner John was born six months before Christ, and the Archangel Gabriel announced his birth in the temple at Jerusalem, revealing to Zechariah that a son was to be born to him. Through the prayers offered beforehand, the child was filled with the Holy Spirit, and St. John prepared himself in the wilds of the desert for his great service by a strict life of fasting, prayer, and sympathy for the fate of God's people. At the age of 30, he came forth preaching repentance, and he appeared on the banks of the Jordan to prepare the people by his preaching to accept the Savior of the world. In church hymnography, St. John is called a bright morning star, whose gleaming outshone the brilliance of all other stars, announcing the coming dawn of the day of grace, illumined with the light of the spiritual Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Having baptized the sinless Lamb of God, St. John soon died a martyr's death, beheaded by the sword on the orders of King Herod at the request of his daughter. Now, there are some things about St. John the Baptist that I'll be honest, I kind of overlooked or I just didn't think enough about. And so I wanted to kind of dig into some of these points or these aspects of St. John and and his character. When people asked St. John if he were the Messiah, he clearly said that he was not. He actually said of himself that he simply was And this is a very famous quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And that comes from John 1.23. When the Pharisees asked why then he was baptizing people, John responded that the one who was coming, meaning Christ, was someone whose sandal strap he was not worthy to loose. And the coming Messiah, he said, is preferred before me because he was before me as the eternal son of God. John came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. So this is the first thing that Bryce really strikes me about John the Baptist. You know, he's he's on the iconostasis in every Orthodox church, right? Yeah. And he's one of the most prominent saints that you can see in our churches through the iconography, being front and center like that. Right. But the beautiful thing is that he was definitely not focused on himself or achieving any worldly goals, was he? Not at all. And you look at his iconography and you see how he's dressed most of the time, you know, uh, I mean, he was living in the wilderness. Yeah. He's kind of disheveled. He's, he's kind of pictured in this, you know, his hair's a mess. He's kind of this wild man image, right? Exactly. He's out there eating locusts, eating, you know, raw honey. Um, and he's spending time in the desert. And as I understand it, he's kind of the, uh, one of the, the first monastic in a way. Yeah. He goes out and he does that. And, you know, when I was becoming Orthodox about five years ago, I remember in our parish, I guess, uh, the parish that I was chrismated in, which is your parish, St. Nicholas, I remember looking at the icon of St. John, and I'd never heard the term forerunner before. Hmm. He was always St. John the Baptist, right? And I was wondering what was meant by the forerunner. And, you know, after 
kind of listening to the services of the church and really going back and reading into uh, the Gospels, the forerunner, he is preparing the way. Yeah. And that term, how we remember him through that way and how we recognize him as being the forerunner, he is preparing the way for Christ. The coming Messiah, he said, is preferred before me for he was before me yeah, as the eternal son of God. And so recognizing Christ. And also when you think about, you know, when, uh, after the annunciation, when the Theotokos goes to St. Elizabeth, uh, John jumps for joy inside Elizabeth's womb. That's right. In the womb. That's right. <laughs> he knows who's there. He knows who is right next to him. Yeah. And that's just incredible. You know, like even before he is born into the world and before he starts walking around and before he starts, you know, his job, he recognizes this. It's incredible. Yeah. And even from the womb, he was kind of pointing people to Christ and the coming of the Messiah. And you're so right about that term forerunner. That's something else that, you know, I'd always heard, you know, being Orthodox my whole life, St. John the Baptist being called the forerunner, but I really never put much thought into it, or I, I didn't think about it enough to realize the significance of that. And the fact that, you know, he wasn't focused on himself. He was always pointing towards Christ, towards the Messiah, and not looking to be successful in a worldly way. He wasn't trying to achieve worldly goals with some kind of status. You know, even having said that though, Bryce, we're told in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter three, verses five and six, that St. John the Baptist had quite a following of people. He was getting a lot of people's attention. And in that part of the Gospel of Matthew, it says, Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And this was something new, and this was something different. And people were really drawn to him. You know, St. John's message had wide appeal that it even attracted the Pharisees, the Sadducees, tax collectors, and soldiers. Not everybody was on board, of course, but it was definitely getting people's attention. And he certainly did not tell those powerful groups what they wanted to hear. And he actually mocked religious leaders, you know, at one point calling them a brood of vipers and, and asked, you know, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And right. just the statements that he made were so bold. He had a lot of audacity and he didn't hold back. He didn't self-censor, right? Like Father Hans has talked about. He really mm -hmm. showed courage. And this is something I think that he has in common with with the saint that you chose, with St. Alfred, the courage that he exhibited, he wasn't afraid of what might happen to him by standing up for the truth and really calling people out. Right. And, you know, you, you mentioned St. Alfred and there are some parallels there. Their enemies are different in a way, right? Alfred is fighting a physical war mm -hmm. where his body is on the line against pagan invaders who, if they got the chance, they would sacrifice him to Odin. And at the same time, St. John is against the leadership of the time, this brood of vipers, as he calls them. Yeah. And like you said, it takes a great amount of bravery and boldness and courage to say the things that need to be said. And not- That's right. Not in the sense of we as modern people, you know, there is the, the term of political correctness, right? And it's thrown around so much, I don't even know what it means anymore. But something that Father Hans has said is begin saying the truth. Yeah. And you don't need to justify it. And St. John didn't feel the need to justify it. You know, he said what needed to be said. Yeah, and given his fearlessness, it's not surprising that St. John was ultimately beheaded by the ruler, Herod, right? And the, the thing about St. John is that he just, he didn't tell anyone what he or she wanted to hear, right? And that, that ultimately can get you in trouble, but at some point, you know, somebody has to stand up for the truth, especially when you have a ruler, an emperor doing just grossly immoral things. And, and that's what prophets historically have done too. They haven't been afraid they show fearlessness to stand up to the emperor if they're doing something immoral, if they're not doing something godly. And the thing that I love is that St. John would not, he, he didn't embody just doing what was popular or what was easy, right? For some kind of expediency or status that Absolutely. I think is just rampant in this day and age. And he showed that in his lifestyle as well. 
going out into the desert. You know, he, he wasn't, he wasn't searching for worldly glory. He had a job that he needed to do and he took that and he did it right. Like his purpose was as the forerunner to prepare the way for Christ. And in much of his iconography, you see him with a scroll and it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right. And, you know, you hear that. Sometimes we hear it in a homily. When I was a Protestant, we would hear this in a sermon. You know, we, we see people walking around on the street with this on their signs. And that causes people to mock. That causes people to get angry. Mm-hmm. That causes people to get defensive. Right. That's not something that people want to hear. Right. And especially at this time, Christ is incarnate. He is walking among the people in the first century. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yeah. he's preparing the way for that. Yeah, and that's a leadership role. It's it's an important role. It's it's a it's a huge job. It's a big deal. And and again, he stepped up to the plate. He knew that that was his his job or his role to do. And you know what's interesting about the fact that he was baptizing people and this was kind of a a new thing. I actually was listening to a recent episode of the Lord of Spirits podcast. I know we've we've kind of referred to a lot of those podcasts in the past, but you know they've recently done a series on the sacraments and the one on baptism. Father Stephen DeYoung did a really good job of kind of talking about the context of why the baptisms were happening or just the context behind it. And it really came out of the context of ritual washings, which the purpose of which was just to allow you to draw near to the temple. Mm. That's what ritual washings were for. Right. But in this case with the baptisms, he's out at the Jordan and he's actually calling people further away from the temple in order to be baptized. So there's kind of a, you know, Father Stephen was talking about, it's kind of like an inversion here that St. John is doing where it's inverting the way in which most Judeans would have wanted to see themselves as, as going through that ritual washing to draw nearer to the temple. And I think this is really significant because what he's essentially doing is calling people out of Jerusalem and out of the other cities of Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And he's calling them out to the Jordan to remove themselves from the world. But in this case, the world here is Jerusalem, and that's supposed to be the holy city. Right. And so what does that say about Jerusalem's state and the state of the temple that was in Jerusalem? Right. It's it's treating Judea as the place of sin, like you would hear from. And I know Father Stephen said this, like Egypt in the Exodus or like or when Abraham was called. And so Herod's temple, which is the temple that was standing at that time, is being treated as not the holy place. And so there were different groups at the time that had different relationships with the Jerusalem temple. And you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees that were essentially the establishment that were running things. And so for St. John the Baptist to literally be calling people out to the Jordan and calling them to repent from their way of sin as they were living in, in Jerusalem, right? That was an insult to the establishment. Yeah. I mean, the Sadducees would not have taken that very kindly. And that's why I think St. John was unpopular among certain groups of, of people, especially the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who were in the leadership positions, because it was a direct insult to them that they were calling people away from the temple for this remission of sins, for this baptism that was a part of it. So what I found fascinating and I thought was a key takeaway from St. John's example was he was really leading a spiritual insurrection among the people and calling them to repentance, to be purified from the way of life they had been living, and and to rid themselves of that residue that was left on them from that way of life through baptism. Right, and physically sort of removing them from that epicenter, right? This is not a place that it should be. It's not being treated the way that it should be. Right. The Holy Temple. And so bringing people out of that and purifying them in the water. And I think key in that is taking people away from that epicenter, right? And bringing them into a place where that's sort of an afterthought. And the fact too, that you have the leadership kind of following John around Mm. and they're leaving this spot. Yeah. They're leaving this epicenter of which they are comfortable in of which, you know, there's not a whole lot of challenging things. They can kind of go through their day to day and do what they've been doing. 
and they're following John and they're seeing what he's doing. And I can only imagine that they were very much puzzled at least. And then yeah. when he began to call them out too, uh, <laughs> I mean, what audacity, right? Like, right. You're- and they're not, they're not on their turf at that point. Right. That's exactly right. And he was very popular among the people. But one thing, Bryce, I keep going back to is thinking about the state of the culture, right, in the holy city of Jerusalem and how bad Mm -hmm. things had gotten, how corrupt things had gotten. And it makes me think about, you know, we're not immune from this today. I mean, we have to be vigilant. We have to make sure that as we're going to church and we're, we're looking at the culture of the church and the larger church, that we don't get kind of complacent, that we don't kind of sleepwalk through our faith, because the same thing that happened in Jerusalem at the time of John the Baptist, there's no reason why that can't start happening even in the church. And so this the spiritual insurrection that St. John the Baptist led, you know, we always have to be kind of conscious of the fact that we have to be awake, right? And there's this great Greek word, nepsis, which means wakefulness or watchfulness, and the importance of having that. And that happens to be another one of the the virtues or the the values of the Antiochian men that we'll get to is vigilance. And it's hard to talk about just one of these virtues without the others, without these other core values that we talk about, because they're so interrelated. And if we're not careful, and I think, Bryce, this is the important point for us today, right? As the culture has been going haywire, and we've done so many episodes Hmm. on the craziness of the culture that surrounds us, the dominant culture in especially the United States, it can seep in through the walls of the church. It can change, especially even leaders in the church to try to want to change some of the teachings or some of the things that the church has said are unacceptable. And so what does that spiritual insurrection look like today? Like if we look back at St. John the Baptist and what he was doing, doesn't mean that we have to necessarily go out to the Jordan River, right. but there may be things that we can do to try to prevent the culture for to, to devolving to the point where it was when he was doing these baptisms. Yeah. And I think it goes back to one of the core things that St. John says in the scriptures. It is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right. Right. And we're living... <laughs> I think most, uh, if not all, generations since Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension have believed that they were living in the last times, that he would return at any second, and we should live in that way. Right. And, you know, it's historically, right, Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed not too long after this point. It's toward mm-hmm. the end of the first century that the Romans come in and they destroy the temple and the Jewish people are scattered across all corners of the earth. I do think it gets back to vigilance because St. John was very brave in what he said. He showed courage in what he said and he was martyred for it. Yeah. And he was also a very charismatic figure too. And he knew how to get people's attention. Absolutely. So this is another important aspect of leadership, right? Not to just sit back and wait for somebody else to do something or to say something, but when you yourself can make a difference and when you can make an impact to actually step up, right? And to to actually make that first move and not wait for someone else to do it. You know, we talked about the fact that St. John the Baptist, he wasn't out for his own glory, and he had these skills like being a charismatic figure that that helped him, but he really directed his own followers to become the first disciples of the Lord. He was pointing them to Christ, as we were saying earlier, and as he explained to some that viewed Christ as maybe a competitor to himself, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Mm-hmm. That comes from John chapter 3, verse 30. And John the Baptist compared himself to the bridegroom's friend at a wedding. The friend is happy for the groom, but he's hardly the center of attention. You know, that's such a beautiful kind of perspective to have. And it shows that St. John had extreme humility while at the same time showing leadership to others and directing people to follow Christ. And this great prophet was truly a very humble man. And instead of focusing on his own agenda, right, like he completely was dedicated to fulfilling the calling that God had given to him. And I think through that humility, that was the only way he could even see that. Yeah. And, you know, I love the, the analogy from John three twenty nine, 
when the Baptist compares himself to the bridegroom's friend at the wedding. Mm -hmm. He's happy for the groom, but he's not the center of attention. He's not trying to make it about him. Yeah. Right. And we've all been to our buddy's wedding, you know, and, and we've seen him up there with his bride and she looks beautiful. He looks great. And you see the smile that he has and you're like, my guy made it. Right. Yeah. And I think we see that, you know, when we're trying to build our brothers up. Right. And this, I think, is a core element of us with the Antiochian men is we want everyone to find their talents and build upon those talents and not so that we could say, Oh, Hey, I found this guy, you know, Oh, he only made it there because of me. No, we want to help them because ultimately they will help the church and they will help themselves. Something that father Hans says, right? A man learns about himself when he helps his neighbor. Right. And when he is able to build up his brothers. And, you know, when I was attending St. Nicholas Church with you when I lived in Arkansas, there were many men that we saw come into the church over the course that I was there where, you know, they'd come in as a catechumen eventually or, you know, just as an inquirer. And they would gradually build the confidence to want to contribute. They would build the confidence to continue to go to holy services, even though they couldn't participate in the sacraments. And seeing them change, as well as, you know, Michael, you and I seeing ourselves change, as well as many of the men that we've met across the country, let alone our own diocese, thank God, that we've seen really just grow into themselves. And at the end of the day, everything we do is for the glory of God. And when you remember that, and seeing your brother succeeding you know, we're, we're not jealous about that. We want him to do the best that he can. And we want to see him grow in the way that he needs to grow. Yeah. And that actually fills us with joy to see a young man really come into his own, start contributing. This is happening to me even now, Bryce, with some men that you know, others that you haven't even met that have recently come to my local parish. It's it's a beautiful thing. And it's something that that, again, I can't get enough of. I can't I can't not do it because the joy that you feel when you see that kind of thing, you want others to be successful, right? And you also want the next generation to be able to pass down what you have learned, what has been passed down to you. And I think what you said is, it's just so beautifully said. I do want to go back to something that you talked about earlier about St. John the Baptist and how he's portrayed right out in the desert. And you, you'd mentioned the first words out of his mouth are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, he famously wore a very simple garment of camel skin and his diet, you said, you know, consisted of locusts and wild honey <laughs> through decades of humbling himself, right? And going through self-denial before God, that's what allowed him to gain the strength to resist whatever temptations he would face. Because again, he had a big role. He had a very important job as forerunner and the temptations weren't just going to go away like he was going to face them. But that self-denial, that discipline and the fact that he was able to gain humility in the process of all that self-denial to see what his gifts were, not for his own glory, but to enable him to serve God. And truly that to me is, I think, one of the things that I didn't think enough about when I learned about John the Baptist, his extreme humility and self-denial really allowing him to be successful, to not just resist temptations, but to see how he could best serve God. And you know, Bryce, like I fell into this trap when I was a younger man, I thought I knew how I could best serve the church or help others out, but yeah. I was really deluded. I didn't really have a good understanding of how I could best help out or serve the church. And usually it's not what you think you should be doing that is the best way for you to use your talents. This is why it's so important to have, as we've talked about many times, a spiritual father to guide and direct you that may see things in you that you don't see. But how will you even listen to your spiritual father if you're not focused on being obedient, having self-control, really checking your ego, which is exactly what St. John did in the desert by just going through this extreme process of self-denial and discipline, that humility, so he could have it revealed the best way to serve God. Yeah, Michael, what you said reminds me of, we are now in this period of Great Lent, and at the time of this recording, it's the eve of the Sunday of Orthodoxy. So we're nearing the end of the first week. 
And I believe we've done an episode on fasting before, right? And so definitely go back and listen to that. But when it comes down to fasting, you're not just doing it for the sake of not eating a certain type of food, right? You are denying yourself in more ways than one. And it's not strictly dietary, right? We are, you know, let's say I'm driving on the road. I live in a city now. And uh, frankly, there's a lot of bad drivers, right? Now, my inclination is to get angry when somebody cuts me off or they're driving too slow or they didn't use their signal or they ran a red light or whatever it may be. But it can be much more difficult for me to deny myself, take a breath and not get angry, say a prayer, right? And even Mm. attending holy services as you are able, uh, that can be a difficult thing as well. During this first week of Great Lent, we do the Great Compline with the Canon of St. Andrew. And during that service, uh, there's a lot of matanyas. There's a lot of prostrations. This is an active thing that we have to do. And if you've done several prostrations in a row or over the course of a few minutes or however long, it gets very tiring, right? And the fact of prostration, you are putting your whole body on the floor. You are kneeling. And more so than kneeling, you're putting your face to the ground, right? And this is this is a, a way of denying ourselves. And yeah, and Bryce, I've noticed that those prostrations become even more tiring the older you get. <laughs> That's right. what you have to look forward to, my friend. <laughs> well, you know, when I first started doing them, when I was about twenty-one or twenty-two, uh, you could pop were- right up. They were difficult then. Yeah, I guess I could pop right up. I was, I was doing them in a cassock up until recently. But uh. right, right. No, but I I love what you're talking about with the the focus on fasting during Lent, and you know we did do that episode, and it was about the different things that we kind of step up, and and I would definitely encourage everyone to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't yet. Because, you know, all these things that we kind of increase, you know, our prayer, our almsgiving, our fasting, attending services, reading scripture, those are kind of the five things we talked about in that past episode. When we, you kind of shift the focus to that, it's not just doing it for the sake of doing it. Like there's a, there's a purpose for it. And when you actually take it seriously, when you integrate everything and not just one thing, you're going to find that things are going to become revealed to you. Like this example of St. John the Baptist. I mean, he took it to an extreme. He went into the desert. He was eating locusts and honey. He was literally self-denying himself to a monastic level, right? And that's not what we're mm-hmm. all called to do necessarily, is to take it to that extreme. But in the ways that we can, or to the extent that we can, when we do increase these things, like what you were talking about during the Great Fast, during Great Lent, there's things that we're not going to necessarily no, unless we go through that, unless we start integrating all those things. And then before you know it, God is whispering in our ear and telling us something that we wouldn't have heard otherwise. Right. It, it is a call to attention, essentially. Um, that's definitely a big part of it. And, you know, we, we have these services prior to Great Lent, you know, the Triodian services and His Grace Bishop Nicholas, who was our bishop of this diocese, he had said, this is the church getting ready to wake us up. Mm. Great Lent is right around the corner and you got to get ready. (laughs) And, uh, you know, (laughs) it is a situation where, you know, you do as you are able. You, uh, you know, when I first came into the church, I, uh, I had this idea that I'm going to do everything that I can possibly do. And even more. Right. And I began to realize very quickly that I wasn't at that point yet. And one last point about fasting, too, is, you know, when we're fasting, we don't have the inclination as much to sin. We don't have the energy. When you have a full belly, your mind is checked out. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, that doesn't even really matter what you're eating if you're eating to excess right? Like I've had situations where, you know, I was trying to eat fasting food and I ate too much of it. And then my mind went all different places. I know exactly what you mean, Bryce. That's <laughs> happened to me too. <laughs> right. Right. And you, you know, you, oh yeah, I'm doing a great thing here. 
and I want to tie that back into St. John's discipline and his self-control because, you know, like you said, he, he goes out in the desert, he's eating bugs, he's eating raw honey, right? Mm -hmm. Like even for a modern person, that's, nobody does that, right? Yeah. No, nobody's going out to do that. And the self-control, even for an ancient person and the self-control and the discipline allowed him to resist the temptations that came to him by him not indulging in things that I think most people would love to indulge in. Most people would just like to check out, eat as much as they can, consume much as social media as they can, uh, do whatever it is that distracts them from God. And, you know, I can't speak for you, Michael, but I'm definitely guilty of this from time to time. We want to check out, we want to give up. But St. John is someone that we can look to. He never gave up. He did the things that he needed to do. He was disciplined. He practiced self-control and not just through the things that he ate, but through the things that he said. And he did say things that he needed to say. He said them straight yeah. and to the point for the glory of God right. to prepare the way for Jesus Christ to begin his ministry. Yeah, that's that's so well said, Bryce. I I think St. John the Baptist is such a great example for all of us, and especially in this day and age when we live in this kind of me-centered culture, and and the the whole spirit of individualism has just kind of run rampant. You know, it, it's it's one thing to to want to you know do the right thing, but if we seek to use our faith to try to get what we want in this world, like on our own terms, you know, no matter what that is we're not going to have a whole lot in common with St. John the Baptist because that's not mm -hmm. how he was. He wasn't trying to get things that he wanted or use faith to kind of, you know, get to some kind of end on his terms. It was never about his terms, right? It was all about God. It was all about making the way straight for Christ. So I think the, the really big final takeaway is that we have to, we have to follow St. John's example to really, not make it about ourselves, not make it, because at one point or another, there's going to be that temptation to be very self-centered, to be selfish. You know, I know before I had kids, I was a lot more selfish. And even after kids, I was still, I think, too selfish and didn't put enough focus on my kids when they were young. I mean, I'm, I'm in the place now where I've learned from a lot of those mistakes, but we can't view our participation in, in really any religion, but especially going to church is some kind of way to try to get God to give us what we want, you know, cause that's really just simply a form of idolatry trying to get right. God to do what we want him to do. Right. It's transactional. And that's how, that's how we view it. Right. I'm going to do all of this. So you will give me this trying to make a deal with God. Yeah. And, <laughs> and frankly, you know, what? It doesn't work like that, right? Mm -hmm. And even even a beautiful thing can be perverted if we're doing it just for ourselves and just for our glory. That's right. That's exactly right. And what so what St. John the Baptist did as the forerunner, you know, preparing the way of the Lord. I think that we as men, we have to deliberately prepare the way of the Lord in our own lives. We have to kind of apply that. And that's what real men do. That's what real men do, real strong men. They prepare the way of the Lord in their own lives. They don't try to make it all about themselves. You know, we have to take that example and we have to be an example to those who are younger than us, who are less experienced than us. We have to make sure that the true center of everything that we do, especially in church, is about Christ, because it can very easily kind of fall into some other motivation. And then we're not then we're not really seeking our own salvation. We're being tricked and led astray. Right. Right. And, you know, during the time of great Lent as well, we, I mean, this is a great chance for spiritual growth and it is a great chance for, you know, learning more about yourself. And a big part of that is you are faced with challenges that at some points you may not, you may not experience or you may not entirely recognize until that point. Yeah, that's really a good point, Bryce. I think we always have to remember what the end goal is and the fact that we're on a journey to the empty tomb. And through that journey, we're going to be tested and we're going to learn a lot about ourselves. And in the, in the episode we referred to earlier, we talked about how this is the time when we get the opportunity to do that deep cleaning and to repent from sins that we didn't even know were there. And the only reason 
that we'll even know that they're there is by going through, you know, kind of the process of of fasting and, and praying more, going to the services. When you do all these things more, all those imperfections kind of come to the top and you can deal with them. And and that I think is is one thing that St. John the Baptist really did an ex- it's exceptional job with. He had to have done that for the big role that he was stepping into. You know, the fact that he went out to, into the desert. Now I look at that and I realize it was really necessary for him. If he was ever going to live up to really his high calling of being the forerunner, that's exactly yeah. what he needed to do. And that's what we all need to do to some extent in our lives to fulfill our calling. And I want to wrap things up here talking about these two wonderful saints, St. Alfred and St. John. You know, they they have a lot in common, and we kind of talked about that they both showed courage at at least one or pro- probably more than one point in their lives. Mm-hmm. They were leaders, and they they really went against the grain in a lot of ways, and they didn't do the easy thing. They did what was necessary. And one of the other things that really stands out to me, Bryce, and I'm sure you picked up on this too, you know, we talked about St. Alfred and the fact that, you know, he he had kind of a spiritual revival that he led among the monasteries that had really been beat down under Viking attacks. And and St. John the Baptist was calling people out of Jerusalem and to repentance, and he was leading a spiritual insurrection and really a kind of spiritual revival in his own right. You know, and, and I think both of them were so spiritually focused in making sure that Christ was at the center of their lives. And really yeah. all the saints do this well, but in particular, when we're talking about leadership and the spiritual element to that, you know, it was always about looking at raising the bar. And that reminds me of what Bishop Nicholas tells us all the time, that we have to raise the bar in our own spiritual lives. We can't get comfortable at the level that we're at. We always should be striving to acquire the virtues, to become more and more godlike. And so as I look at the lives of of St. Alfred and and St. John the Baptist, I see two men who really lived as men. And the masculine virtues that we talked about, the courage, the fearlessness, you know, the duty, the responsibility, and the leadership to be leaders of others, these are perfect examples of how we as men should model our lives so that ultimately we can achieve our salvations as well. Bryce, what are your final thoughts? You know, when, when Michael and I began talking about doing this series, you know, and we had, we had picked out who we wanted to talk about and I didn't know, uh, we're going to be talking about St. John, um, on this episode until (laughs) earlier today, actually, um, it got me thinking and it got me thinking because, you know, I, I go to church as often as I can. And I see the icon of St. John every single time I'm there. I see him standing next to our Lord in his clothing, in his iconography. He, he's there and he has the repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand scroll in his hand. And I, I think about that often when I'm in church and I, I think about the bravery that St. John showed. And, you know, many of the times when we're in our lives, you know, we face all types of different adversaries or perceived adversaries, and it takes bravery to counter these things. It takes bravery to say what needs to be said. It takes bravery to repent. It takes courage to do those things. We fall down again and again and again and again, and each time we need to stand back up and press on, and that takes courage. And as we enter this time of the great fast, you know, I do reflect on this is a time for repentance. This is a time when, you know, we go to the holy services during the week. We hear, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. We are preparing for Pascha. We are preparing for Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And when, you know, we look at the lives of the saints each and every single one of them among the many. Michael and I discussed two today, but among the many, each of them lived a life for Christ. And so when we look at St. John as the forerunner, as you know, the one who prepares the way for the Lord, the one who was martyred for God, the one who lost his life, the one who 
that said, I must decrease and he must increase. You know, I think about how we can apply that and where we can apply that. And, you know, the importance of living our lives for God and submitting to his will. I think about St. Alfred and I think about where he was, the time that he was, the odds that were against him. You know, he had to deal with illness. He had to deal with being alone. He had to deal with betrayal, but he never gave up. And St. John never gave up on what he was saying either. And so I think at the end of the day, you know, the emphasis on repentance, we don't give up doing that. We don't get to a point and we say, oh yeah, I'm good. We don't get comfortable in our prayer life. We don't get comfortable in what we're doing. We're always striving to become more like God. And the saints are there because they lived lives for God. Many of them were martyred. Many of them lived holy lives. Many of them started out like many of us and they found their way to repentance. And so to wrap it up, when I think about Alfred and I think about St. John, they lived in very different times in very different places, but they both lived the life for Christ and they were both courageous. They were both leaders. They were both obedient and they both endured to the end. And so I think that we can take a lot for them and we ask for their intercessions as well. And thank God it's been an absolute journey being able to learn about these two and God willing, you know, Michael, when you and I continue to go forth in this series, we'll learn so much more and we'll be able to talk to all of you about it as well. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. And I hope all of you listeners are also looking forward to our upcoming episodes. This one was focused on leadership and some really good examples from two very godly saints that I think we can all, I know I take a lot from. So thank you for listening. This will conclude our first episode in this new series. And we thank you all for joining us for this episode of Coming Out of Chaos. Remember, as always, to check out our website at antiochianmen.org to learn more about our organization. We have many videos available that can be found on that website as well as on our Amen YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, just to name a few. So be sure to follow us on the platform of your choice. We'd also appreciate a positive review if the platform allows you to do so. Please share this podcast with your friends and help us to spread the word about it. We want to thank everyone who's been sending us feedback on our podcast episodes. If anyone would like to send us feedback, just send an email to amendomse at gmail.com. That's A-M-E-N-D-O-M-S-E at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments for us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.